It is uh, good to be back with you again today. Uh, as, as Bill announced last week, my wife, Lois, uh, came down with COVID about three weeks ago now, two and a half weeks ago, three and a half weeks, I, I forget when it was. And uh, she's doing better. She wanted me to pass that information along. She's gaining strength, not quite back where she was before, but uh, hopefully she'll get there soon. So uh, I thank Bill for stepping in last week for me, kind of last minute. And as we watched the service last week, one of the things that I always try to do when I'm away for a week is, is kind of bridge from the last week to this week and come up with something that'll, that'll kind of connect the two. And then I, I saw Bill's sermon title flash up, Frankenstein in the Gospel, and I'm like, what do I do with that? Uh, honestly, I've been working on that all week long. Uh, I, I still haven't worked out the sermon, but I've got a working title, and the working title is Finding God in Godzilla. <laughs> So that may be down the road. I'm not sure if I can pull that off or not, but uh, I really appreciated, Bill, your work last week on, on Frankenstein. <laughs> and uh, just really, if you haven't listened to it, if you weren't here, you really do need to. It's a treat to see how that, that book written by someone who wasn't trying to communicate the gospel really did communicate the gospel. But I'm not quite ready on the God and Godzilla yet, so... Uh, you'll have to have to wait on that one. Keep coming back. What I do want to talk to you about this morning is weakness, and particularly embracing weakness. And we're going to do that out of a text in Second Corinthians chapter twelve, verses eight through ten. And I want to read that passage to you as we begin this morning. There, Paul writes these words. It's in the context of sufferings that he had been uh, uh, undergoing. And he talks about a thorn in the flesh. And we don't know what exactly that thorn was. There's all kinds of theories. But uh, it was something most likely physical that Paul experienced that, that was just a constant reminder to him that he had to rely upon God. And he said, three times I pleaded with the Lord to take it away from me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness." Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may rest on me. And that is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, <clears throat> in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Last weekend, uh, Lois and I, as, as we were on Saturday, had an online funeral service on of a lady that had been a teacher of ours in high school like 50 years ago who passed away and we watched as one person after another shared the impact of her life on them and the ripple effect of her life over the years on, on so many people and it left both of us kind of thinking in our own minds what what is our legacy going to be what are the things that are most important to us and I thought it, it, it kind of took me to a place where I thought, if, if I were to die today and I had to come up with uh, the most significant thing that I did in my life, the most significant thing, what would that be? What would I think that it would be? I want you to think about that for a moment. You can't say, you know, in, um, going into relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Of course, that's a given. That's the most significant thing that each one of us has done. But apart from that, moving on from that, what's the most significant thing that you've done 
with your life. I think in, in a very real sense, as I have thought about that over the years, I've thought that perhaps the most significant thing that, that I've done with my life when it's all said and done will, would have happened on April 11th, 2012. April 11th, 2012. I'm going to tell you about that in a little bit, but just stick with me as I, as I set that up. Uh, each year around this time, it'll start in another week or so, uh, ESPN begins broadcasting an event that will almost get as much TV time as NBC has given to the Olympics. How many of you have been following the Olympics in one form or another over these past weeks? Uh, just a lot of TV time. But ESPN starts something in the middle of August that also takes up a lot of TV time. And it's their uh, production of the Little League World Series, which takes place in Williamsport, Pennsylvania. And it's a, it's a tournament where teams from all over the world come to, to play baseball. And inevitably, what ESPN will do is they'll focus on one particular team or, or maybe an individual who's just having an incredible tournament, hitting home runs, or one year it was a girl who had pitched their team uh, to, a 12-year-old girl who pitched their team to the Little League World Series, and that, that story was the story that dominated the whole production for, for the weeks that it, that it went on and on. There's teams from Japan and the Orient that, that come, uh, teams outside of the U.S. have won it like 37 times, and teams within the United States have won at 36. And as I, as I look at this production and all these games, and it's really kind of interesting, they get former major leaguers who were former little leaguers to do the broadcasting. And so it's just this incredible production they do. And, and as it winds up and comes to a close, and there's an, invariably one person who's, one, one little boy who's the hero of the Little League World Series that year, uh, I think back all kinds of good thoughts about playing baseball when I was young. But when that all settles down, there's one nagging thought that hits me that's not really happy at that point. And the nagging thought that hits me is that whether these kids realize it or not, that it's entirely possible that their lives just peaked, you know? Like it's all downhill from there. They, they were the star of the Little League World Series. And we've got a picture here of a team from the, from the Northeast who they're winning the World Series, they're dogpiling. And, and the kid in the middle who's looking up out of the dogpile, I keep thinking if I could put a caption on it, he, what he's saying is, did my life just peak? You know, that's what he's thinking right there. At age 12, it's all downhill from there because of, of what's happened. Um, it's hard to discern just when you think about it, what's the most significant thing that you've done in your life. It's hard to, it's hard to discern. And the reason why is, is for, because of this word that I'm going to use over and over again this morning. It's the word weakness. It's the word weakness. Uh, weakness is, is part of how we experience life. And we can't always connect the dots. We can't always see the significance of every little thing that we do to know what and be able to judge what would be the greatest thing that we've done. Uh, Pastor Ray Ortland Jr. has said at one point in talking about this concept, he said, our problem is not just weaknesses. Listen to what he's saying here. It's not just weaknesses. More profoundly, our problem is weakness. Weakness is not just one more experience alongside all other experiences. Weakness is the platform on which we have all of our experiences. 
So he's saying it's not just things that we're not good at. And we say, well, that's a weakness of mine. He's saying that our whole lives are lived on a platform of what he calls weakness. Weakness is a pervasive presence in all we do and all we are and all we do. It will not always be so, but for now it is. And I want to talk for a little bit here to begin with about what I'm calling the weakness platform and, and kind of <clears throat> riffing off of what, uh, uh, what Ray Orland is talking about here. Four things that characterize the weakness platform. And the first one is this, and I'm, and I'm going to tell you what it is. I'm going to give you a, a biblical example, and then I'm going to share an example just from my experience of, of people who, have, uh, who kind of illustrate that point. The first thing about weakness is we realize we can't do it all. That's part of the weakness platform. We can't do it all. Uh, one of the stories in God's Word that I think is very poignant is the story of King David. And when you think about King David, I don't know what you think about, but there's so many different ways you could go with King David. He was this mighty warrior in battle. He was the shepherd. He was a harp player. He composed most of the Psalms that we have in, in, our, in our Bible uh, songs. So he was a he was a worship director. He was a warrior. All these different things. He eventually became king of Israel. But the one thing that David wanted to do, all those things he did so well, the one thing he really wanted to do, he couldn't do. God didn't allow him to do that. And that was, he wasn't allowed to build the temple. Once he became king, more than anything else, he wanted to build the temple. And, and God says, no, you've been a man of bloodshed. We're we're going to wait and have the temple built by, by your son. And so what David did, realizing that he wasn't going to be able to experience that dream of building a temple for God, he did the next best thing. He had the architectural plans drawn up according to how God had communicated those. Uh, he went out and, and bought all of the supplies that would be needed, all the lumber, all the gold, all the different metals that would go into the building of the temple. He created a, a workyard for all these things and essentially brought everything to the place where the temple would be built. And he left it there. And he took the plans for the temple that had been drawn up and he just kind of rolled them up and he, and he tucked them away in a place where his son Solomon would be able to one day pick those up and unroll the plans and go to the yard and start building the temple. He couldn't do it himself. He, we can't do it all. That's just something that we experience in life eventually at one point or another. Early on in life, we, we feel like the horizons are endless. There's so many different things we can do. As we get older, we realize uh, all those things that we thought I'll get to someday, all of a sudden you begin to say, yeah, I'm probably not going to get to that one. I'm probably not going to be able to do that. I probably won't, won't experience that, that experience. That's the nature of life. We cannot do it all. I have a, a couple of friends who are pastors in our denomination. One is a, a black, young black pastor, and the other is an older white guy uh, who has been doing youth work his whole life, worked with Youth for Christ and, and continued to do a lot of ministry with, with young people, even into his older years. Uh, the pastor's name, the, the black pastor's name is Mike Campbell, and the, the other fellow's name is Steve Lanier. Steve and Mike uh, worked in a community. Their church was in a community that was a very poor community. You would call their church a community development church, and they did all kinds of things. They had a big vision for how their church 
could minister to their community. They did uh, community gardens. They even went to the extent of buying homes in the community and, and kind of flipping them. But instead of flipping them for profit, they flipped them for an amount that the people in the community could buy them for and so that they could, they could uh, help people into home ownership and saw that as a way to help them get out of their poverty. This was an area of the city where they lived that 52% of the people um, lived below the national median level of, of income and the crime rate in that area was 86% uh, uh, higher than the national average for crime. It was a very needy, needy place. And after all these things that they wanted to do, uh, they realized there was one more thing that they wanted to do more than anything else that they felt would have the most long-reaching effects on their community that their church could do, and that was to start a Christian school for the kids in that community. You've heard the expression that some people are born on third base and they think they hit a triple, you know, that, that kind of thing. Uh, there's all kinds of us that could probably relate to that in, in one way or another. But then on the other side of the coin, there's those who are born into poverty. And from a human perspective, they just have no rungs on the ladder to climb out of that. It, it's just not going to happen unless they, they are, are helped in some way to get out of the cycles that have perpetuated over generations. And, and Mike and Steve were convinced that one of the things that could break that break through all of that would be a good, solid Christian day school that would help kids. They went through the whole studies of uh, studied other models and came up with a plan for their school, uh, what they would need in terms of people, in terms of facility, in terms of curriculum and all, all sorts of things that they wanted to do. They had a great vision statement. But when it all came down to it, this was around 2010 or so, um, they realized they had one thing missing. They didn't have the money to be able to pay for the school. Great plans, great vision, great mission, but they lacked the money. And so they just kind of rolled the plans up, stuck them in a tube and put them off to the side, realizing that they kind of hit the wall of weakness that says we can't do it all. I think a second uh, characteristic of the weakness platform is that we're not in control. We're not in control. Uh, when I think of a biblical character experience being out of control, I think of the Apostle Peter. And we've talked about that a couple months ago. Around Easter time, I had a sermon where I, I talked about how Peter had gone from being this proud person who was very sure of himself. He was not going to do anything to embarrass the Lord uh, to the point where the night that Jesus went on trial and into the next morning, Peter denied the Lord three different times. And part of that denial was due to the fact that, that he lost control. He thought he knew everything that was going to take place. And when his concept of what should have happened started to unravel, he realized that he wasn't in control. And I think the, the one point where it really came, he came to that realization was on the, in the Garden of Gethsemane when Jesus was praying and the soldiers came to take Jesus and, and Peter pulled out his sword and he cut off the ear of the soldier. And it was like his rallying cry to say, let's go. We're going we're gonna to take over the, the city. We're going to take over the nation. We're going to take over the world. And what Jesus did at that point was reach down and picked up the ear and put it back on the soldier's head, and he healed it. And Peter at that point was like, whoa. 
what, what just happened. That doesn't fit into any of my understanding of where this whole thing has been headed. And he, lost, he realized he was out of control. And before long, he denied the Lord three times. And the rooster crowed. Uh, we're not in control. And that's part of that weakness platform. Uh, in, in my life, there's one person that I always think of when I think of that idea that we're not in control. It's a friend of mine who lives in the South. And you would know it by his name. His name is Arkley Hooten. Arkley Hooten. You don't find someone in Los Angeles named Arkley Hooten. Uh, but you do in the South. Arkley's a great guy. He's been my friend for 20 years or so. He's on staff with our a denomination's uh, home missions board where I also work. And his particular job, though, is disaster relief. Now, if you think about that for a minute, what, what he's basically doing is he's harnessing resources to go and meet needs that happen wherever disasters occur. And that's hurricanes, it's, it's tornadoes, it's fires. They were out here in Northern California years ago when the Chico fire burned down the whole city of Paradise. We had a church up there, and 60 people lost their homes. 60 different homes were, were burned to the ground. And Arkley and his crew came out to work with that uh, situation. Um, but every year that Arkley begins his work, you, you know, if you're one of those kinds of people that want to have a pretty good idea of where your life is headed, do not get into disaster relief. Because on January 1st, you have no idea what's going to happen that particular year. Uh, you're you're going to be called here or there or somewhere else. It could be a fire, a flood, or a hurricane. But Arkley serves with such a great attitude and a great, a great spirit that he's always been a, a model to me of what it means to like embrace the weakness of not being in control. Uh, his, his life is going to fall out the way that God intends for it to fall out. And he's going to embrace that and not feel like he has to control everything that's going on. I think the third characteristic of, of the weakness platform is that we're short-sighted. We're short-sighted. We think in the here and now far more than we do the future and far more than we do eternity. The one example in God's word that, that I always think of when it comes to that is a man that we don't know his name, all we know are three things about him, and that's how we refer to him, the rich young ruler. He was rich, he was young, and he had political power. He was a ruler. And it was this man, we're told in a couple of the different gospels, who came to Jesus at one point, and with all that he had, he said to Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus looked at the man, and he understood um, the idols in that man's heart. And he, and he gave the man an answer that's not an answer, I don't think, for everyone, but it was an answer for that man. And what he told that man was, you need to sell everything that you have and give it to the poor and follow me. That's what you have to do to obtain eternal life. And of course, Jesus wasn't saying you just obtain eternal life by giving money away or doing good things. He was saying, when you follow me, you'll get it. You'll understand the gospel and you'll embrace that. But before the rich young ruler could even get that far, we're told in all the stories that his head went down and he walked away because his wealth was too important to him. He was short-sighted in that way. There's a man by the name of Bob Buford who's no longer living, but he wrote a book uh, 30 or 40 years ago called Halftime, Christian Man. The book was called Halftime, and the subtitle of the book was Moving from Success to Significance. 
And Bob Buford was a very successful businessman who uh, came to the point where he uh, had, had achieved every benchmark of success he could from the marketplace standpoint, from a business side. And all of a sudden he realized that his life didn't have the significance that it did. So he wrote about that, moving from success to significance. There's another fellow that I think about, a man by the name of Bob McKay. You won't recognize that name, but Bob McKay was a man who uh, moved from success to significance. His story actually is, is embedded in the story, believe it or not, of fast food in Southern California. You know, if you, if you think about it, all the, di all the different fast food places that have originated in, in Southern California, uh, McDonald's, first McDonald's was in San Bernardino, the first In-N-Out was in Baldwin Park, the first Derwiner Schnitzel was in Wilmington, uh, the first Jack in the Box was actually right here in San Diego on 63rd and El Cajon Boulevard, there's the first, first Jack in the Box. And uh, Bob's history though was more connected with Taco Bell, and the first Taco Bell was actually built in Downey. California. So all these places that have become such iconic franchise fast food places had roots in Southern California, uh, most of them in the late 50s and on in, into the 60s. Bob McKay was an architect at the time, and Taco Bell was actually started by a man named Glenn Bell, believe it or not. I mean, when you think about Taco Bell, wouldn't you think it would have been started by someone named Juan or Pablo or Alberto or someone like that? But it was started by a guy named Glenn Bell, a white guy named Glenn Bell. And those of you who are, are like foodies and, and real like Mexican food aficionados, uh, your response will be, well, of course, some white guy named Glenn started Taco Bell. You know, who else would have started Taco Bell? Uh, but but Glenn, Glenn Beck started out doing a couple of other different kinds of fast food places or, or walk-up places in his day. They sold hamburgers and hot dogs at one of them. Uh, and, and he thought he was really going to make his money out of hot dogs. It's a good thing he didn't because I don't think Hot Dog Bell would have had the same kind of impact in a marketing uh, plan as Taco Bell did. But, but anyway, he moved from uh, this hamburger hot dog stand to uh, inventing the hard shell taco or coming up with that concept for fast food. And he sold these tacos alongside of, of the hamburgers and hot dogs in a, in a franchise that he started calling Taco Tio. But, but in 1962, he actually started Taco Bell. And when he started Taco Bell, one of the things he realized was that all these other places that had captured audiences and, and, and consumers in, fast, in the fast food industry not only were many of them started in Southern California, but many of them had a very unique kind of architecture. And I've, I've got a picture here of some of those unique architectures. You know, McDonald's uh, is the one that you're known by the, the arches. Um, and in and out it's the arrow, you know, that, that you see that arrow and you know, well, that's, that's in and out Over in the lower left-hand corner, that's their wiener snitchel because their building looks like a hot dog, doesn't it? I mean, it's got, it's got the mustard-colored roof, and it looks like you just stick a hot dog right in there and you, and you eat it. And then in the, in the lower right-hand corner, Jack in the Box had this incredible concept that their architecture would be centered around a jack-in-the-box, you know? So they, they had, if you, if you remember, they had these funny-looking guys that stuck out of boxes at, at jack-in-the-box, and you would go through and get your food. Well, Glenn Bell realized that that was going to be a key thing for him, and so he, he met up with, with um, 
Bob McKay, who was an architect, and said, Bob, I want you to design a distinctive architecture for Taco Bell. And the next slide shows uh, what that first store looked like. And, and it's, a, it's a style of architecture that's kind of followed Taco Bell on, on through the years. Bob McKay came up with that. Bob and Glenn had worked so well together on that. Glenn appreciated what Bob had done that Glenn finally said to Bob, Bob, you need to quit being an architect and come work for me. This business is taking off and I'll make you president and you can work with all the different franchisees and, and make, we can really make this thing sing. And so Bob decided to do that. And part of the deal was for Bob to get <coughs> uh, shares in the business and that sort of thing. Well, Taco Bell took off beginning in 1962 and by 1978 had become very valuable and was bought out at that point by Pepsi Company for $125 million. And because Bob had been in on the beginning as the architect and, and president, uh, he had, he had a, a large share of those holdings as an owner in the business, and he, he became an instant multimillionaire at that point. But that was kind of the halfway point in his life, and he realized there's more to life than just making all this money. And so he started uh, figuring out how he could do philanthropy in the best way possible. He started banks in different parts of the country in order to provide business loans for, for small business entrepreneurs. He, he went even over to Africa and figured out ways that he could invest money to help, uh, help poor people in, in the continent of Africa in their situations. And he began to, to see that he's got to break out of the short-sightedness of just achieving success and move on to significance. And so he sought to do that. The final thing I want to mention about the weakness platform is that not only we can't do it all and we're not in control and we're, we're short-sighted, but finally, we're not rock stars. We're not rock stars. That's part of the weakness. That's part of the weakness of platform. A few weeks ago, we talked about the story of James and John and the, and the um, uh, Last Supper of Jesus and how James and John were always trying to jockey for position because they thought they were significant. And remember, we came up with the phrase backseat middle. That's where God wants us to serve. That's where God is often found because we're just not all rock stars. I had a, a friend of mine, I call her a friend. She, when I went from Harbor up to uh, Encinitas to pastor a church up there back in, in 2008, I inherited several people on the staff. And one was a lady by the name of Linda Michael, who was a few years older than me at the time. And and the interesting thing about Linda is that she had done all kinds of uh, interesting and, and significant things in the marketplace. She had worked her way up into middle management uh, in, in some companies that paid her very well, and she had significant position there. But she decided that she wanted to be long-sighted, not short-sighted, and she went to work in the church. And in the church, the positions that she had were not like the commensurate with where she left the marketplace. And that was fine with her. She said, I just want to come and serve. She had done two or three different things before I got there. During the time that I was there, she was a children's director for part of that time. She headed up our, our welcoming committee also. After I left, she stayed at the church and she, her job morphed a few more times, but she was always about, what can I do? I'm not so concerned about who I am and what I've achieved, but I just want to serve. I want to be someone that, that can fill a small place because she realized she wasn't a rock star. That wasn't what it was about. And she was willing to be weak for the sake of Christ. 
Now, I want to get back, giving that as kind of the, the weakness platform, that we can't do it all. We're not in control. We're short-sighted, and we're not rock stars. That defines what weakness means for us. I want to go back and talk to you about what I think might have been the most significant day of my life in April of 2012, April 11th specifically. It was a Wednesday that year, and it was the Wednesday right after Easter. That, that Monday, I, I was just, um, you know, I was, at the, I was at a point of exhaustion. We'd just gone through an Easter weekend where with our Good Friday and Easter services, we probably had 500 people coming into the church and ministering, and, and my mind was filled with all the things that I needed to do to follow up, and I just needed a day off, a day to rest. And on that Monday, I, I got an email <clears throat> from uh, Linda Michael, uh, this lady, and she said, hi, Doug. We have a family friend who has lately been talking about the needs in America, in the South, specifically Mississippi. He wants to go there and give money to people who could use a helping hand. We have told him that he needs to have a group to help him, but he is distrustful of organizations, including churches. That said, do you know a pastor or another person who might be able to work with him to identify needy people in Mississippi? <laughs> kind of a broad category, huh? Can you find needy people in Mississippi? Let me know your thoughts. Thanks so much, Linda. When I got that email uh, on that Monday after, after that incredible weekend, you know, I, if you're anything like me, you're just kind of like, oh, man, what is this about? You know, why, why is this falling in my lap at this point? There's so many other things that are kind of calling at me that seem to be so much more important. And here I've, I've got this email that I need to deal with. Um, at that particular time, we were in the stages of talking through a merger with Harbor, Carmel Valley, Paul Kim's church, and the church that I was pastoring up in Encinitas. We'd, we'd gone pretty far in, in talking through the whole merger of, that, of those two congregations. I had just recruited a church planting intern who was getting ready to, to come in, and I was planning all the things that he would be doing. There was all the follow-up from Easter. There was just a whole bunch of things on my plate. And when I went into the office on Tuesday, I, I just didn't really have time to deal with this email. I told Linda, I said, can we talk about this tomorrow morning? She said, sure, that'd be fine. And so I did all the things that I really thought were significant and important on Tuesday. On Wednesday, <clears throat> she comes in and we, we met first thing in the morning. And, she, and I said, tell me a little bit more about this situation. And I'm just trying to get the facts so that I can pass this on and move back to the things that are, are really important for me, frankly. And she said, well, you know, this friend um, that we have, my cousin is his travel agent, and he was telling her this burden he has developed for people in Mississippi, and he's going so crazy over it that he's about ready to get on a plane and fly to Mississippi and stand on a street corner and start handing out $20 bills to people. And I said, well, you know, and, and Linda and I kind of laughed, and we both understood that's not how you really help people uh, in a place like Mississippi by handing out $20 bills. But uh, she said, so I'm just wondering if you knew someone that we could connect them with. I, I know there's a lot of other things going on, but if we could just pass on a name, uh, I'll follow up, and that, that'd be great. And I said, Linda, I don't know anyone in Mississippi who is poor, but I know someone who would know someone in Mississippi 
who works with the poor. And the person that came to my mind was Arkley Hooten, my friend who worked in disaster. If you work in disaster response, you spend a lot of time in the Gulf states because that's where all the hurricanes rip through and all the tornadoes, uh, a lot of the tornadoes come through there. And, and I'm, I, would, I knew that Arkley had a big history of working in the state of Mississippi. And if anyone would know where we could direct someone who wanted to relieve poverty in Mississippi, uh, Arkley would be the guy who would know that person. And so after Linda left the room, I said, Linda, I'll write my friend and we'll see where it goes from there. At 9.40, I wrote Arkley an email that morning. I said, hi, Arkley, how are you doing? I hope you're doing well. I said, I received the email below, the one I read you a little bit a little while ago, from Linda Michael, who is our children's director at, at North Coast. I told her that you were the best person I knew who would have a feel for needy people in Mississippi. I don't know how full your slate plate is right now, but if you have the time to give Linda some input, she would appreciate it. Blessings, Doug. And as I read that email years later, uh, knowing how I write and correspond, I realized what I didn't say in that email that I was really feeling. And it was all about, hey, can you help Linda out? But really what I didn't say was, Arkley, help me out here. Would you help me out? Uh, I need someone to kind of take this and run with it because I can't get bogged down in this. Who knows where this thing is, is going to go? And so I'm basically pleading with Arkley to, to take this over for me. And, and like five minutes later, I get an email back from Ark, uh, or I get an email from Linda. I'd copied her on the email to Arkley. And Linda said, thanks so much, Doug. We'll see just how serious my friend is about reaching out personally and helping people. Uh, eight minutes later, I got an email from Arkley. And Arkley said this, Doug, Sherry is, uh, is my uh, admin assistant for disaster response. She lives in Mississippi, in Mississippi, and she'll be able to help Linda in her request. And later that evening, I got an email from Sherry, the one that worked with Arkley. And she says, Doug, I shot an email to Linda and gave her my phone number, as it will probably be best to talk over exactly what the needs are, Sherry. And so Sherry and Linda the next day began talking on the phone and one thing led to another, things began to open up. I didn't tell you, Sherry's last name is Lanier and she's the wife of Steve Lanier who worked with Mike Campbell and had this vision for this Christian school in the city where they lived, which was in Jackson, Mississippi. And as Linda and and uh, Sherry were talking, and Linda got a feel for what was, uh, uh, or Sherry got a feel of what Linda was talking about. She went into Steve after she hung up the phone, and she said, Steve, you better sit down for this one. And, and she began to tell him what she had just found out. And uh, Sherry tells Steve what she's learned and that they need to get in touch with this guy and see if he can be of any help to him. And this man's name was Bob McKay. After several phone calls, uh, Bob and his wife, Megan, hopped on a plane and flew back to Jackson and met with Steve and Mike. And in my mind's eye, as I think about that encounter, I, I, I see in my mind's eye uh, Mike and Steve kind of rolling out the plans and, and putting them out on the desk and going through the vision that they had. And Bob and Megan just latched onto it. And they said, what can we do to make this happen? And they said, well, the only thing we're really lacking is, is money. And Bob and Megan says, we've got that covered. Don't worry about it. 
and they wrote a check, I believe, at that point for, for half a million dollars to the church to get this thing off the ground. The church uh, started the school in 2014, and during that time, in those years, two years that, that took place, Bob just was very much involved with um, the whole situation, not micromanaging it in any way, but Bob was a, a very humble man. He empowered people, and uh, he, he, one of the quotes that Bob always said that I've tried to remember in my life ever since I heard it, he would say, if I'm the smartest, if I find that I'm the smartest person at the table where I'm sitting, he said, I need to find a new table. <laughs> I need to find a new table. And he would constantly be looking for ways that he could learn and that, that he could grow. They subsidized the school. And part of the vision of the school was to intentionally reach out to the kids in their neighborhood, these kids that were uh, in, in these dead-end kind of situations. And they said that they had requirements for the student body. And it wasn't just that, it, like in a lot of churches that start Christian schools, the first priority will be to church members. The kids of church members get first priority at the, at the Christian school. They said, no, that's not how we're doing this. The first priority will go, we're going to have 80% of the people, 80% of the kids in the school will be kids that are living in homes below the poverty line. And as they figured out the cost of that, they, they realized that each student essentially was going to cost about $12,000 um, to, to educate in that kind of environment. That's not a lot of money if you're, if you're in education and know those things, the cost of teachers and curriculum and, and all the administration and everything that goes around a school is going to cost about $12,000 a kid. Bob and Megan set up a situation where each of those families could have their kids in the school for $300 a year. And Bob and Megan were going to underwrite the remaining portion of that. Um, every GA that I would go to, General Assembly, uh, for the next several years after that, Sherry would run up to me and says, I got to tell you what the latest is. And the first one, I actually remember the first one she came up and said, Doug, I got to tell you the latest. And, I, and in my mind, I'm going, who is this lady? I'm not even sure who she is. It, it had totally escaped my mind who this lady was. And then I'm like, you know, you do that thing where you just talk long enough and you finally, oh yeah, I know who you are. And, and you act like you've known all along. It was one of those kind of, of situations. And she shared with me all that had been taking place and the, and the ways that Bob and Megan had stepped forward in that particular uh, situation. And uh, they, they ended up <clears throat> spending far more than that half a million dollars to get this school up and running. They, they started the school in 2014. Now the school is up to seventh grade. And if you look, uh, we've got some pictures here of, of uh, some of the kids in the school and, and how that school has developed. And you'll see that, <clears throat> that um, it's, a, it's a school that's having a tremendous impact. Their goal there was not just to uh, teach kids reading, writing, and arithmetic, but it was teach kids in ways that they could change their environment. They could change the state of Mississippi. They could change the city of Jackson. And they, they designed their school for that, for that purpose. One GA a couple years ago, um, I went up to Steve and I asked him how things were going. I said, Steve, what's, what's the latest story you can tell me about the Redeemer School? And he told me, he just said this, do you know James Meredith? And the first thing that popped into my mind was like the really famous 
James Meredith, but I'm, I'm like, that can't be who he's talking about. He must be talking about another pastor in the denomination or something like that. And I, I said something like, you mean like the James Meredith? And I laughed, or, or do you mean uh, someone else I don't know? And he goes, no, the James Meredith. Do you know, do you know who that is? And I said, certainly I know who, who that is. So pause just a minute. If you don't know who James Meredith is, James Meredith was born in the early 1940s in a rural town in Mississippi where he um, <clears throat> graduated from high school and joined the Air Force, went into the Air Force for nine years, got out in 1960, and, and uh, in 1961, right after John F. Kennedy had become president and inspired the nation with all the changes that were to be made, James Meredith says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna test the waters on this. And James Meredith says, I wanna be the first black man who will be admitted to the University of Mississippi in Oxford. And so he made application and, and uh, it went, you'll, you'll see a picture here of James Meredith in the middle there. Um, there were all kinds of roadblocks that were put up in his way to make that um, admission into the University of Mississippi. Um, the government, the national government had to be involved because the governor basically said no school in Mississippi is gonna be integrated as far as I'm concerned. And this was after the, you know, the 1954 Board of Education uh, declaration that outlawed segregation in schools. And Mississippi was still just dragging its feet on that. And James Meredith says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna test this. And he pushed and he pushed and he pushed. President Kennedy, uh, Attorney General Robert Kennedy got involved. And finally, they, they forced the school to open up admissions to James Meredith. The day that he, marched onto campus, went into campus to enroll. He was accompanied by U.S. Marshals, U.S. Border Patrol, uh, people from the Federal Board of Prisons. All of, those, all of those law enforcement people numbered over 500 to bring him onto campus to enroll at the University of Mississippi where he attended for the next couple of years. James Meredith's story didn't end there though. Uh, he graduated from University of Mississippi and in 1965, Congress had passed the, the Voting Act of uh, the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and in 1966, James Meredith said, "I want to make a statement about the Voting Rights Act. I want to encourage voting." So he he started what he called the March Against Fear, which for him was just going to be himself, no one else, not all kinds of organizations, not hundreds of people, but he was going to march from Memphis down to Jackson, a march that would have been around 220 miles. He was gonna do it all by himself. On the second day, he got up and was walking down the highway and he was shot twice with a shotgun. And this is one of the iconic pictures of the civil rights movement in the 1960s. James Meredith on the highway uh, after he had been shot. Uh, he was taken to a hospital and when word got out of what had happened, there were other people that descended into that area who took up the march for him. By the time he got out of the hospital and was able to join them as they were making their way into Jackson, there were 15,000 people uh, that were there. And it was one of the, one of the great marks of the, the civil rights movement in the 1960s. So flip back to a few years ago and Steve Lanier is saying, do you know James Meredith? And I'm like, well, yeah, I know who that is. And I, as far as I was concerned, James Meredith, um, had probably died by that point, I wasn't sure, but this next picture is James Meredith today. And what Steve told me is, uh, James Meredith's grandchildren go to the Redeemer School. 
And he said, I've been had the opportunity to spend a lot of time with James Meredith because of the Redeemer School and disciple this man and help him in his understanding of the gospel. And a while back, a few months ago, James came to me with a proposal. He says, I want to do a speech at the church, um, and I want it to be something that will benefit the Redeemer School, but I think we can get a lot of people here for that. And, and Steve worked with him, and they opened up their, they publicized it, opened up their church that night. All sorts of journalists, all sorts of academicians came in, people with PhDs who, who knew the civil rights movement, wanted to hear from one of the icons of that movement. And James Meredith talked about those days, but before he was through, he gave testimony to his own faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Redeemer School and what this church was trying to do with the school in that, in that community and all those people heard that message. And when I, when I tell those kind of stories, and when Steve would tell me those stories, it's like the hair on my arms would just kind of, kind of rise up, and I, and I would just think, wow, this is just an incredible outfall or, or, or falling out of what was something so insignificant at the time. Um, Bob McKay actually died four years ago in 2017. And Steve, uh, Bob had asked Steve to come out. They lived up in Tustin. Uh, Bob asked Steve to come out and do the funeral for him. And uh, Steve told the people at the funeral that one of the things that Bob wanted him to communicate was that of all the things that he'd done in his life, all the philanthropic things that he had done after he'd become so wealthy, he said, the greatest blessing and the best investment I ever made was in the Redeemer School. And Bob and Steve would have this conversation where they would say that God is going to raise up leaders who will change Mississippi. And Bob would say to Steve, you know, it'd be really cool if we got a Supreme Court justice out of this whole deal, wouldn't it? And Steve said to Bob when, one of those last days, the two of us might not live long enough to see that all, God, that all that God will do through this school. And Bob simply responded by saying, I know, but we can see enough. We can see enough. At that point, as he was in, in his last days, he set up an endowment for the school. And so in addition to contributing to the, to the regular general fund of the school and all the buildings that they had built, he endowed it so that the school could continue on. And we're talking just incredible, incredible amounts of money uh, that would cause your jaw to drop if I gave you the figure that has gone in to Redeemer School from the man who was the architect of Taco Bell. <laughs> Let me give you three takeaways real quick. I know this has gone long, but this story you can tell us, it's kind of dear to my heart. Um, I, wanted to, I wanted to share it, not to in any sense take credit for the Redeemer School. If, if that's what you're getting out of this, you're getting the wrong, you're getting the wrong thing coming from me. I, I did none of the heavy lifting on this. But the first thing I want to say by way of takeaway is be faithful in the small stuff in your life. If you're going to embrace weakness, be faithful in the small stuff. Because the bottom line was this. I forwarded an email. On April 12th, April 11th, 2012, I forwarded an email. And it might just turn out to be the most significant thing that I will ever do in my life. Maybe not. Who knows? That's the whole point, isn't it? That's what weakness is about. We can't connect all the dots. We don't always see the ramifications of everything 
we do in our lives. One day in heaven, we will. I think that'll be one of the great joys of heaven, just to see how all the dots connected for things that we may have even forgotten. Isn't it kind of amazing that the most significant thing that you may have done with your life is something you've totally forgotten about? (laughs) But see, that's the point of Paul's words here in 2 Corinthians. When we're weak, when we operate off that weakness platform, then God is strong. And God's power is made perfect in our weakness. So be faithful in the small stuff. The second thing is just to embrace that weakness. You know, as you face your own mortality, it's always easy to begin to wonder if you've done anything with your life. Uh, When you start comparing yourself to other people, you may get discouraged with all that they've accomplished and the little that you feel that that you have done. But here's, here's what God's word tells us, friends. We can relax about all that stuff. Comparisons aren't aren't going to get us anywhere. They're not helpful. Uh, relax in what God has called you to do and do it. On the tombstone for Jackie Robinson, the man who broke the color barrier for baseball, it reads this, a, man, a life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. A life is not important except in the impact it has on other lives. And I would just carve in two more words if you put that on my tombstone, and it would be, for Christ. The impact it has on others' lives for Christ. And who knows what that's going to be. But when you're faithful in small things and when you embrace weakness, then God steps in. And that's the last thing. Just leave room for God because his purposes will always be accomplished in spite of our strengths and through our weakness. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you're a mighty God that can do far beyond everything that we ask or think. And we pray that you would once again impress upon our hearts the, your great power and all that you really desire from us is a willingness to be used in very small ways for the sake of your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen.